0: If you have your Bibles with you, you can open with me to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 3. This is Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. He's writing from prison. And the theme of uh, this letter, at least one of the themes, is the joy that Paul has that he wants Christians to have. Uh, which is an amazing theme when you're in prison, that that they would have that same joy. And in this text, Paul helps us think through how he used to value one thing, and now his value systems totally changed. Let's look at it, starting in verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, "...of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything loss that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything, you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to that which we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I've often told you and now tell you even in tears, walk as enemies of the cross. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Father, I ask that You give us wisdom as we look at this text God, I pray that you wouldn't just enlighten our minds, but our hearts as well. God, I ask that if there's anyone here who is walking as an enemy of the cross of Christ, that they may repent and turn to you. And Father, I pray for those who know you, that they would even be more steadfast in striving forward to run the race, to win the prize. God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just by way of orienting you to this text, this text really stands in three parts. We see what Paul values. He just tells us, here's what I find valuable. Here's what I don't find valuable anymore. That's verses 3 through 9. Then in verses 10 through 13, we see what Paul does. So Paul says, here's what I value. Therefore, here's what I do. And then the last section, verses 14 through 21, is Paul saying, imitate me. Value what I value. Do what I do. And the charge of this sermon is to aim your life towards the resurrected Christ who's at the right hand of God. Aim your life. I was trying to think of what word to use. You know, I'm a hunter with my bow, or with a gun, when I'm aiming, I can tell you it's intense. It's intentional. And I'm saying, aim your life at the resurrected Christ. Because Paul did. And says we should imitate him. And Paul tells us also to imitate those who are living like he's living. You can also notice in your notes that there's three parts uh, of salvation that are described that Paul touches on. When we think of salvation, we can think of it in three parts. Our justification, what's that mean? When God justifies a sinner, he legally declares them not guilty in his law books in heaven. Not guilty. And the reason why God can do that, say that for sinners, is because Jesus lived the life you could not live. He never sinned. And when you trust in him by faith, his life is put in your account book before heaven, and God looks at it and says, justified, not guilty. And it's secured for the believer the moment they savingly trust him. When they're broken and realize I have no hope in and of myself and trust in Christ. Righteous. There's a declaration of righteousness. Paul talks about that. But our salvation is not just that declaration. But there's a promise of sanctification. Justification, now sanctification. Sanctification is the promise of God that in our salvation, the Holy Spirit will enter into us and enlighten our eyes to His Word, and we'll begin to have victory over sin in a progressive nature. We'll become more and more like Christ. We won't reach perfection this time of heaven, but sin will no longer have slaving, uh, a slaving effect over us like it did before we were born again. So there's a progressive changing to become more like Christ. And Paul's going to talk about that. And then he's going to talk about the end of our salvation, glorification. When we get new bodies, when we will sin no more, when... We will finally worship the way we ought to worship and live perfectly the way, in a way that glorifies God. That's our glorification. So I just want you to know those. So as I point them out, we don't have to uh, work through them then. Point one says, invest your life in the resurrected Savior. The reason why I chose the word invest is because Paul is using accounting terms. He's using terms that an accountant would use. Look at verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. These are business terms. So I started thinking about investment, and I was reading about investing money, and that's not something I do much of because I don't have a ton of it to figure out. I don't need an advisor yet, but I read Warren Buffett's two rules for investing. Here's what he says. Rule one, never lose money. All right. And I thought, boy, that is profound. (laughs) Rule number two is never forget rule number one. He goes on to say, stay rational, stick to your homework when researching businesses in which you wish to invest. Stay rational. Think clearly, Warren Buffett says. He knows something about investing. You're not led with your heart in investing. You do homework on which businesses to invest in. Here's another thing Warren Buffett says. He says, the key is high returns and low risk. And I thought, boy, that's profound too. Give me the investment with high high returns and low risk. And then he says, risk comes from not knowing what you are doing. A person is risking or being risky when they don't know what they're doing. He's saying, don't do that. Well, Paul the first half of his life invested incredibly poorly. He invested in his ability to be good in the flesh, to be a good person on his own, to value prestige, to value trying to earn a relationship with God by good works. And he's arguing with people that say, we're the real people of God. We're circumcised. And he says, no, you're not circumcised. You're circumcised in the flesh. We're the real circumcision. The Spirit of God lives inside us. And he says, if we were talking about circumcision in the flesh, I smoke all of you. I win that game as well, Paul says. And then he rattles off that he's a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He's born into the right family of the tribe of Benjamin and the right people. He's in the right religion, hangs out with the right people. He's the most religious. He's the most strict. And not only that, he's the most passionate. He's a persecutor of the church. And what Paul says is, oh, that was my whole life. I mean, my eyes were on investing for what counts. And that was that was my life. If I was going to show you my assets, I take you and I show you that. But he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. For the sake of Christ, Paul ran into Jesus, a spiritual financial advisor, who enlightened him to new things so much so that he looked at what he had and says, That was nothing, that was loss. For the sake of Christ, he saw Christ, and then he looked at what what he had, and he says loss. It's in the loss column, that way of life. And then in verse 8 he says, indeed, I count everything loss because, now don't miss this, of the surpassing worth, it's an investing term, of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. There's nothing more valuable than the person he knows, Jesus Christ. You take that value, none of that other matters. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Now, I'm not going to swear this morning, but if I was going to give you the idea of what this Greek word means, it means excrement. I look at that part of my life. Paul is not being uh, speaking with high language here. What he's saying is, I count it excrement, rubbish. He has strong feelings. His value changes have, have gone 180 degrees in an opposite direction. And then he says, in order that I may gain Christ. He knows that gaining Christ means seeing Him as valuable so that you receive Him as your Savior. It's a total reversal. He counts everything loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Your whole life ought to be about eternal life. And here's what eternal life is in John 17 Three, and this is eternal life that they know you the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent Jesus Christ is eternal life (laughs) knowing him is eternal life you can't rip joy out of Paul's life when he's in prison because he knows Christ you can't take that from him he knows him it doesn't matter his circumstances anymore. This is what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 13, in the shortest parable we have in the Bible. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. So follow it. Man finds a treasure hidden in a field. He covers it back up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. And the shocker in there is it says, in his joy, he sells all that he has. Which means the treasure that's in that field is worth so much more than all that he has. It's a great transaction. Jesus taught, Matthew 6, 19, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. He's, being a, he's trying to help you invest well. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He says, wherever you put your hope, it's where your heart goes. It's where your soul goes. What, what do you value? What do you live in your life for? And for... 1 Timothy 6.18, Paul says, he's speaking to the rich. He says, they are to to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Because the danger is that they are going to take hold of that which is not truly life. The rich are in a dangerous position. They can grab onto it and take hold of it and leave behind that which is truly life. But he says, rather, rich, be generous, ready to share. Be looking to the future, to investments that last forever For Paul, what he used to count gain was his pedigree, his religion, his self-righteousness, his religious victories. How about for you? Could be your job. Could be your material possessions. Could be earthly pleasures or appetites that you continually go to to try to satisfy the soul, but you're always left empty could be children, could be a wife. Where's your soul resting? What are you putting as the value of your life? And then look at what he says in verse 9. So Paul says, I've suffered the loss of all things, In verse 8, and count them rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. What does he mean by gain Christ? And be found in him. What does it mean to be found in him? Here he's talking about justification. If you're found in Jesus, that means God looks at your account and sees Jesus' perfect life in your place. That means every sin you, you deserve punishment for, since you were in Christ, when Jesus died, your death was already died for you. And if you're found in him, just as Christ was raised from the dead, he's the first fruits of those who are going to rise after. He says, I counted all loss because of what I gain in Christ. Here's how Peter says it. first 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. There's the transaction. That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. If you're lost here today, if you walked in here lost, you're spiritually dead. You're a slave to whatever appetite you have you have to satisfy your appetite and you're not free. You're enslaved. But if God has been so gracious to open your eyes so that you see true life is in Jesus Christ, you don't have to live that way anymore. You can be set free to quit being selfish, self-centered, To live for God. When we're in Christ, we have all that we need. He says, being found in him, verse 9, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, that was his previous life. I'm going to be the best according to the law. But he says, when I'm found in Jesus, none of that matters. No one earns their way to heaven according to the law. No one gets there because they're a good person. But that wish that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So he says, here's where the gain is. Those who trust admit they are no good and trust in Christ's righteousness, they're the ones who are filled with righteousness Invest your life in the resurrected Savior. Make a sane investment. You're all dying. I'm dying. From the moment we're born, we're set on a course to where our bodies will fail and die. And the scripture tells us that all of us have an eternal soul that will never go out of existence. In this short time on this earth, the Bible calls it a mist, or like grass that's there for a moment and then withers, and the wind carries it away. During that time, what you value, where you put your hope, will determine where your soul spends eternity. And I'm saying, May invest in Christ. Invest in the one who said he was gonna die. Fulfilled 300 prophecies through his life. Goes and dies and then is risen from the dead. Don't challenge that man's words. Don't do it. Be sane. He loves you and offers salvation to you. Secondly. Strain forward towards the resurrected Savior. So don't just invest your life, which has to do with thinking about what you value. We're supposed to value Christ, but now here's how we live. Here's where he starts talking about sanctification. Here's how you live in light of that. He says, uh, because he suffered the loss of all things, and then in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Paul says, I not only want to know him, I want to know the power in which he was resurrected with. I want that power in my life. Power to do what? That I may share in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead that by any means possible. He says, give me your power so that I can suffer and die. And I think the suffering is twofold. Suffering for persecution, for having, following Christ, you're going to suffer that way. And secondly, it's suffering in the sense that as a Christian, now that the Spirit lives inside you, in Galatians 6 in Galatians 4, we're told that the Spirit's at odds with our old nature. The Spirit wants to put to death, wants to make it suffer to the point of death that old life, that sinful life. And Paul says, give me resurrection power because that's impossible apart from supernatural power. The only way we will have the motivation to willingly suffer like this as if your life is focused on the guarantee of your resurrection with Christ and have his resurrection power in you. And he says, by any means possible. He's saying, I don't care. Now that I have Christ, whatever it takes, I want to live for him. I want to be faithful to the end. Yes, he's going to sin, but he's going to repent and he's going to look to Christ. He's aiming his life to Christ. Christ's death and resurrection saves us from ourself. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 14. Paul says, for the love of Christ controls us. Because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. He looked and he said, okay, Jesus died for sinners, therefore those who trust in him, his death is their death. And he died for all, that those who live, now we're talking about sanctification, might no longer live for themselves, that's how you used to live, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The one who looks at the gospel and has the Holy Spirit come in. Now I don't have to live selfishly as a slave to my sinful nature anymore. And then he says, For now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. We don't think that way anymore. <clears throat> he says, even though we once re, uh, regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Though this passed away, behold, the new is come. There's a new way you can live now. And then Paul says, I'm not there. Look at verse 12. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect. He isn't in his resurrected, glorified form yet. But here's what he does. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. What's going to make you be willing to suffer and fight your selfishness to the end of your life? The only motivation you're going to have is if you know what Paul knows. And he says, I press on to make it my own because he has made me his own. You see, when you see what God has done for you in Christ, it's fuel to share that same self-sacrificial love with others. And then in verse 13, he says, Brothers, I do not consider that I've, all, that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, now get this, forgetting what lies behind and strai- straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. The rest of the world looks back on their life and is calculating. How did I do? Did I do okay? And nobody looks back with an honest heart and feels good, to be honest, right? Right? You really want your whole life put up on a video board to see how you really did? Nobody, thats how the rest of the world is looking back in regret, regret, regret. But the sinner saved by grace doesn't have to look back anymore. Those sins are forgiven. So Paul is grabbing our heads and he's saying, don't look this way. Look this way. Strive, because you're not going to want to. You're going to want to look back. Look at the language. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, it's the fight of our life to keep our eyes on that which is truly real, to put our eyes on heavenly things, on Christ, I press on, that's hard, toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. If you're going to watch the Olympics, and you're going to watch the marathon, and if the best runner in the pack, which they hyped up and told you his whole life story, if four miles into the race, if he sat down, bought a cheeseburger and a pop, and started drinking it, you would say, What an idiot. What is he doing? How dare he? All that training. He's here on the biggest stage and he sits down. And Paul, now that Christ is his life, his prize, his gold medal is pleasing Christ. That one day he can't wait for the day he's not going to sin anymore. And so a race begins, that's the prize, that's my goal, and I'm in a race, and you're not going to stop me. I'm going to strive forward. My aim of my life is on the prize. That marathon runner that quits looking at the prize and looks at the hot dog is stupid. And he's saying, this is how. I live. In Colossians 3, he says, If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. If you've been raised with him, if your life is hidden with Christ in God, if that's true, seek the things that are above. Direct your life that way. Why invest in that which is, means Nothing. Set your mind on things that are above. Set it there. Lock it in. Have people hold your head in that direction. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things on earth. For you have died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you'll also appear appear with him in glory. That's all facts for the Christian. So because that's all true, he says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desire, covetousness, idolatry. So he's saying, value what I value and now live how I live. Here's the direction of my life. Point three in your notes. Here's where Paul says, now do it. Here's what I do. Copy me. Copy those who are like me. Look at verse 15. He he says, let those of us who are mature think this way. Think what way? That Christ is gain. That all this on earth is loss. Think like I think. Otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Already, there's those here who, if they're honest, say, it's otherwise for me. I'm valuing things way differently than the Apostle Paul was valuing. And I pray that by the grace of God that the Holy Spirit convicts you, points you to the Savior that forgives sin, and that you would gain Christ's righteousness by trusting in him. And if you're a Christian who isn't mature and you're thinking, and you know Christ, you are saved, but your head's like this, mainly looking back and rarely looking up. Paul says, think think like me. And then he says in verse 16, only let us hold true to what we have attained. He says, look at all the promises of your salvation, the resurrection that's waiting you. Hang on to that. You've already obtained it. It's a guarantee. Live that life. Don't hang on to this. And then in verse 17, he says, Brothers, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have on us. He's saying, imitate me and anyone who's living like me, who values the same things, therefore has this Life aimed at Christ, he's saying, be around them. Imitate them. Look at their lives. Look at what it looks like when a person values Jesus above all else. Here's Paul late in his life writing to young Timothy. Paul knows his death is very shortly coming. He knows he's going to die for his faith. Here's what he tells Timothy. So flee youthful passions. He knows this is a young man, a lot of passion running in him. So flee youthful passions. He doesn't say, fight it. He doesn't say, stop following them. Stop. He doesn't say, stop. He says, run away. Change your direction. Flee youthful passions and pursue faith. Love, peace, now get this, along with those who call on God from a pure heart. Find people that value the right things, Christ. Flee this and run towards love, faith, and righteousness along with others. That's what Paul's getting at here. And then in verse 18, he says, For many, so some are running this way, but he says, Many are running this way. For many of whom I often told you, and I'll tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross. He's speaking of those in his day that were really religious, but they were self righteous. They thought they were good in their self righteousness. And because they thought they were good, Hey, look, if there's self-righteous people that are truly righteous, you don't need the cross. So you're an enemy of the cross. The scripture reveals to us, all of us are in sin. None of us are good. We all need Christ. But there's many who run their life as though they don't value him and they don't need him. And they run as enemies Of the cross, and he's warning us. He says, Imitate me and those like me, because there's many running this other way. And then he tells us why they're running this way. He says, Their end is destruction. Just so you know, hell is at the end of it. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. There's two types of people. There's those who have been set free from having to satisfy every earthly, fleshly desire to selfishly satisfy your flesh. And those who have now found Christ and said, I don't need this anymore. I'm going to set my life. Here's what Christ has done for me, saved by grace, not by works. Therefore, I have power not to live that way anymore. And then he says this, but our citizenship. There's some looking this way, but he says our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where our hope is, right? We, we're not told to look to heaven just because heaven's great. That's where Christ is. When Christ is on earth in the new heavens and new earth, We look at Christ. We want to be with Christ. He is our hope. So when I was sitting in McDonald's early this morning, just going over the sermon, and I wrote the words, our home is wherever Christ is. I heard a song playing over the radio in the restaurant. So I'm going in my head, our home is wherever Christ is. I'm trying to think how to explain this. And I hear this song, and then I ask Siri, what song is this? Here's the lyrics. I'm like a bird. I only fly away. I don't know where my soul is. I don't know where my home is. This is Nellie Furtado. She runs from this relationship. She's like a bird. Guy gets closer, she flies away. She has no security. Doesn't know where her home is doesn't know where her soul is. But for us as Christians, our soul is settled in Christ. So we can be courageous and self-sacrificial and loving. And then, so I'm like, well, that was cool. Another song comes on by You 2 Well, I still haven't found... What I'm looking for, I'm not going to (laughs) sing. Well, I have. My hope, and I pray your hope, is in Christ. He settles this longing of the soul. He makes it so you can be weird in this world and live differently. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior That's my question for you. Are you awaiting a savior? You see, if you don't value him, you don't think about Christ coming. One of the signs you're a believer is that you're a waiter. You're not saying this is it, but you're longing. You're praying, send Christ, send Christ. Hebrews 9, 28, scariest verse in the Bible, I think. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many... Will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. You see, Jesus is coming back for one type of people, those who are eagerly waiting for him, and the only people that are eagerly waiting for him are those who value him more than his creation and the things down here on earth. And then, verse 21 and finishing. We're waiting for this Christ who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. We await for the one who's going to bring us a body that's not dying anymore. We await for a one who is going to break the power of sin in our life completely to where we don't sin anymore. That's going to be a glorious day. And he says that he's going to do it by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Well, I think there's two ways Jesus has the power to subject all things to himself. The first way is this. He's creator. Therefore, he has right over all things. But I think what Paul has especially in mind here is Christ took on flesh. He came into this world of lost sinners, and he suffered more than any of them. He was tempted in all the ways that they were tempted, yet without sin. Therefore, the writer of Hebrews says, it was fitting It was fitting. It was right in God's mind that the one who's going to save sinners is going to be the son of God, eternal son of God, that's going to take on flesh. Here's what he says. It was fitting for him and by whom all things exist, that's God, and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation, that's Jesus, perfect through suffering. God says, is this the right way to do it? Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to a lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Jesus took on flesh so that we don't have to fear death anymore. His resurrection is a guarantee that we will be resurrected with him. The devil threw all that he had at him to the point of death. And Jesus willingly suffered in our place and died and exploded death apart. So that we don't have to live in fear of judgment for our remaining sin or past sin. Or features it. We don't have to fear that anymore. That's taken care of in Christ. If we don't have to fear it anymore, then we can live lives for God. We can experience a relationship with God through Christ. You see, if you go on rejecting Christ and you don't receive Him, when Christ returns, To save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And to judge those who have rejected him. It is right. And that judgment is good. Because he died in the place of sinners. And you stiff-armed him. And he will bring about justice. He'll bring about mercy for those who will have him. He offers the gift. Will you receive him? Will you count him valuable? Will you trust in him by faith and receive salvation and the Holy Spirit and all the promises so that now your life can be directed? Or will you challenge the resurrected God-man on that day? My prayer is that you'll receive him. You'll value your life and that you'll live in light of those truths. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for the hope we have in Christ. Lord, I pray that no soul here that isn't resting in Christ would be easy. Father, I pray that maybe even over lunch and later tonight, that if a person doesn't know you, that it would be pulling at their heart to value their soul, which is eternal. None of us have promise for tomorrow that we would reach out by faith and receive the free gift. And Lord, for those of us who have Christ and have had our lives directed, valuing other things, Lord, I pray that we would be turned this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.